intellect, strength for your spirit, balm for your heart. The Healing and Peace Show with Thomas Schmier, LMFT, where you get wise counsel based on sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and sound science. The Healing and Peace Show, your Catholic guide through the trials of life. Are you looking for advice from a Christian perspective on chastity for all states of life? Maybe you're single and hoping to be married. Maybe you're single and discerning the religious life or the priesthood. Maybe you're married. Maybe you have children. Maybe you don't. Some of you might be parents who are maybe looking for a way to explain sexuality and chaste dating and courtship to your children. If today's guest can't answer your questions, then no one can. He's a Catholic theologian who happens to be the top evangelist on St. Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Besides being the author of more than a dozen best-selling books, our guest has been featured in the New York Times, on ABC News, MSNBC, Fox News, and countless Catholic and evangelical media outlets. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Christopher West. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Thomas. I'm really glad to be here and with your audience. We're glad to have you. I first found out about you over 10 years ago. Uh, an intern was visiting uh, the area, Newport Beach where I was living, and she was a lecturer at um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a Notre Dame student, and she said to me, you should start a theology body study group. I never heard of it, but you should do this, you know. And so I just thought she probably knows what she's talking about, so I will. And I put an ad in the diocesan newspaper, and 30 people showed up. And she had told me about the Naked Without Shame uh, series. Yes. And so I went there, paid maybe a buck or 10 bucks. I don't know. It was, it was basically free, paid for shit. Uh -huh. and, and I received those. And so I'm just wondering, is, is that series still around or are you doing something new? And if so, how is it different? Uh, there's been a lot of different incarnations of the way I present this message over the years. I, I first discovered John Paul II's teaching in the early 1990s. And the first version of Naked Without Shame came out in, in I think, 1999. And I was pretty green when when I recorded that. I was still in my 20s and I was still learning how to communicate complex theology in in a simplified way. And and I ended up retiring that series a couple years later just because I was growing and, and learning how people were hearing certain things I was saying. And um, so we came out with a new version of the Naked Without Shame series, I think in 2002. That's probably the one you got. Mm -hmm. And and that was much improved. Um, but gosh, the way I, that was, that was still 17 years ago that we recorded that one. So uh, I, I imagine there are a few few nuggets in there that I'm still presenting the same way, but you know, like like anything, whether you're an artist or a musician or a dancer, the way you do what you do is going to grow and change and mature over time. So uh, I'm always putting out new new content. I'm always putting out new series, new books, new courses. So yeah, it's it's developed and matured quite a bit over the years. Awesome. Is there? Is there anything fundamental though, like um, as in, hmm, hmm, I don't agree with that anymore, or 
Not too much. I would say, I would put it this way, you know, when you start dancing, you're kind of a clumsy dancer. And I, I think I, I may have stepped on some toes when I, when I first started doing this work, because I, I was a zealous dancer. I was excited to learn how to enter into this dance, but it's like I would, I would kind of dip my dance partner without really looking in her eyes. You know, it'd kind of be like this quick dip and she'd kind of be a little shocked. And, and I, <laughs> I had to learn how to dance in a more delicate way and and then look my dance partner in the eye and say okay are, are you ready for a dip here comes in a here comes a pretty profound concept can we take a dip together so i i don't know that i mean would i would i disavow i might disavow the way i said certain things but i wouldn't disavow the general idea of what i was trying to communicate okay yeah it's good it reminds me of when i was in school in a practicum class and and i was talking about oh i, I feel really comfortable talking about uh, sexual things with my client and this other therapist uh, student says, yeah, but is the client comfortable? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very well put, well put. Yes. And, you know, there's this give and take whenever you're teaching. And I've I've learned over time uh, how to when 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 words don't mean the same things to both parties, communication breaks down. So learning how certain words are heard, learning how certain expressions are understood by an audience is very important because you might mean one thing and your audience might be hearing something else. So I, I've become a better dancer over the years and I hope I hope 10 years from now, I'll be an even better dancer. Uh, but I think that the underlying message is really about the beauty and goodness and splendor of God's plan for making us male and female. And this is, is something people, generally speaking, have not heard, right? We've heard a don't do it approach. We've heard a thou shalt not approach. But we haven't heard the beauty and splendor and glory of God's plan for sexuality. When, when all we have is a thou shalt not approach, uh, there's no way we're going to be able to convey the beauty of the church's teaching. And if we're only getting that thou shalt not approach, we end up thinking when it comes to these deep yearnings and hungers and longing we all have for love, for union, for intimacy, we, we end up thinking that the church holds out to us what I call a starvation diet gospel, which is basically your desires are bad, you need to repress all that and just follow these rules. Well, I tried to live that when I was a young person because I wanted to be a good person, but the hunger became overwhelming. So I fell for what I call the fast food gospel, which is the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for those hungers and desires. And, and don't lie to me, those chicken nuggets, they taste really good going down, right? If the only two choices are starvation or fast food, I'm going for the fast food. But if that becomes your diet, as it did for me uh, as a young person, the grease and the sodium will eventually catch up with you. In my college years, I fell on my knees saying, God in heaven, if you exist, you better show me why you gave me all these desires because they're getting me and everybody I know into a heck of a lot of trouble. What is your plan? And, and that very honest but very ragged prayer started me on a journey that led me to St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And, and here I discovered that Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a banquet. Here I discovered that this ache and yearning and hunger I felt in my bones my whole life actually has a name. The church, borrowing language from the Greeks, 
calls this hunger eros, E-R-O-S. Uh, now, in my in my mind at the time, you know, I was thinking, okay, eros, the English equivalent of that is erotic, and and anything erotic in my mind was the same as pornographic. But John Paul II corrected me. He said, no, 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 we must never confuse eros with another Greek word, porneia. He says, eros is a very good desire that God gave us in the beginning. And here's my analogy. Uh, John Paul II says, eros is meant to lead us to the infinitely true, good, and beautiful. In other words, it's meant to lead us to God. My analogy is that God gave us eros to be like the fuel of a rocket that's meant to launch us to the stars, to, to infinity and beyond, if I might, might quote the uh, Toy Story movies, right? But here, here's the tragedy. I also learned this from John Paul II, that with original sin, to use my analogy, our rocket engines became inverted. And this is why so many of us go out into the world seeking love, seeking joy, seeking happiness, but it backfires on us. Right, Eros has become something selfish, something self-seeking. But here's the good news of the gospel. Christ came into the world not to condemn those with inverted rocket engines. He came into the world to redirect our rocket engines to the stars. This is good news. This is the invitation to the banquet. And Thomas, I, I believe I have the best job in the world. I just get to... I just get to invite hungry people to the banquet. <laughs> I just get to share this glorious vision with people. And the response has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. I mean, the, the number one response I get doing this work for over 20 years is, I went to Catholic schools my whole life and never heard this. Why not? We're, we really are in a crisis. And John Paul II's Theology of the Body, I, I would propose, is the antidote to the sexual crisis that the church is in today. Thank you for that. It's beautiful. I always love hearing you. You have a way of making what I consider, when I read Theology of the Body, I see it as kind of dry, kind of intellectual, difficult to comprehend, uh, kind of food for the theological nerd. And yeah, well, it's a huge book. Let me just grab it off my shelf here so people see it. I mean, here, here's the tome, right? This is how, this is how thick it is. Uh, it is a theological tome, and, and it desperately needs to be translated into accessible language and categories that, that make sense to normal people, and that's what I've given my life to doing. And there's these nuggets of beauty in there. I think, you know, with St. Pope John Paul II, the way he was, uh, you know, an actor and into the arts, I think yes. it came, some of the beauty came out. But then he also was a professor, and so there's all this theological. Yeah, an academic scholar, and he, he makes use of all that is good in scholarship, which to the scholar is, is astounding and beautiful and rich, but to the average person in the, in the pew, it's kind of like, it's like, here's an analogy. It's like, a, a, imagine a, a virus is spreading around the world, devastating humanity and bringing uh, civilization to collapse. And we have the cure, but it hasn't been put in a digestible form. It's like we have the cure, but it needs to be put in a form that the average person can digest, right? That's that's what I and, and many other people who've come into this field over the years, uh, this is what we've given our lives to, putting this cure into a form that is digestible for the average person. And it, it really is nothing short of 
life changing and revolutionary when people hear this beautiful teaching and they let it in, not just let it in here to inform us, but let it in here to transform us. It, it really is changing lives around the world. How did you come about trying to package this message in a way that doesn't just you know, make it simple, but also you're tapping into our own desires, our own longings. Like, did you borrow from a secular model for inspirational speaking? Or how, how did you, for, with everything that you've created here, how, how did you do this? Yeah, I just went out and, and did it by trial and error. When I, when I, when I was in high school, I was so afraid, Thomas, to stand up in front of a room and give a book report or something. I mean, I actually remember calling in sick one day uh, in high school because I was supposed to deliver a book report and I couldn't do it. Um, but when I discovered this teaching, really and truly, it is like I discovered the cure for the world's cancer. And when you discover the cure for the world's cancer, you can't sit on it. You have to start sharing it. So I just started talking to anybody and everybody who would listen. And uh, there was a woman, young woman. I was, I had graduated college at this point. I was 24 years old. She, she and I had known each other from a prayer group that we were both part of during college years. And she asked me, she heard me talking about it. She got very excited about it. And she said, could you come to my campus? She went to Catholic University and deliver a talk to the students there about this. And that was the first formal talk I ever gave on the theology of the body. And that was 1994. And um, about a year and a half later, I married that young woman who invited me to give that talk. <laughs> so at the end of the talk, she was asking me very intelligent questions. And I thought, huh, she gets this vision. Maybe I should get to know her a little more. And Sure enough, here we are all these years later. We've had five kids together and, and we we share this vision together. She's she's integral to everything I do. But the whole the whole journey of putting this in a language has been a process of trial and error, just getting out there, trying this, trying that, see what works, see what doesn't work, listen to my critics, correct here, correct there, and mm -hmm. keep moving forward, keep going to to uh to refine and refine and refine the approach. And it has been very exciting over the years to see, I mean, right from the start, even though I was a clumsy dancer, right from the start, it was changing lives because it's the power of this message. Uh, and, and all it is, it, it's nothing new. Uh, the, the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it's putting the gospel message in a language that the modern world can relate to. And in, on that count, I have been greatly influenced by even secular artists. I, I draw from the secular culture all the time, from music, from movies, from things that people can relate to right away, because this is this is the language that the modern world speaks. You know, and, and one of my truly one of my great examples here is the Blessed Mother. And by example, I mean how she appeared to Juan Diego and the Aztec Indians 500 years ago. She spoke the language of the Aztecs. The tilma is a translation of the gospel message into the codex, the basically the, the Aztec alphabet, the Aztec cultural way of communicating. And, and that's why it converted however many million people within 
you know, a span of like 10 to 15 years, several million people came into the church at the sight of this tilma because the Blessed Mother put the gospel into the language of the culture she was trying to reach. That's what I'm trying to do. That's why I, I appeal to movies and, and popular music, because I'm I'm trying to, to speak the language of the culture and inject that language with, with the message of the gospel. So I, I do believe that that is a bridge that really, really helps people connect. I like it. I, uh, I don't really have that talent myself in the sense that, well, I'd have to develop it, but that I, I'm more reserved and I'm, I'm at a distance from the culture and then I can provide commentary from that distance because I'm not in it. And I'm not saying you're not in it or not. You're just using the language of the culture. Yeah, but I'm, I would say I'm, I'm in it, but not of it. Yeah. I, I, there are so many things in the secular culture that are admirable. There are so many works of art. There are so many movies that tell beautiful, profound stories. And, and, and yes, there's a lot of garbage out there, too. Uh, and we have to be discerning, right? We have to recognize, okay, there's the wheat and there are the weeds. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't need to just throw an entire work of art out the window because it has some weeds in it. We must be discerning. Mm -hmm. uh, but here also is something very important. It's a bedrock Catholic principle. And if we get this wrong, we get the whole universe wrong. It's this. The devil does not have his own clay. What does this mean? It means the only clay that exists is God's clay. And God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it is very good. Good. It's very good. The clay is good. The enemy gets a hold of that clay, and we in our own sinfulness get a hold of that good clay, and we <laughs> twist it all up, right? Mm -hmm. But even St. Thomas Aquinas makes this very, very important point. He says, when we sin, we're actually looking for something good, but we miss the mark, mm -hmm. right? What we're attracted to in that twisted up clay when we're actually tempted by or drawn in to evil, it's not the evil per se that is attracting us. It is something good that got twisted up. And what we're really after and the deepest level of our hearts, what we're really after is that good thing in there that got twisted up. Christ comes into the world not to throw away everything that got twisted up, but to untwist everything that got twisted up for example pornography the problem with pornography is not that it shows naked bodies naked bodies are not evil the sistine chapel shows naked bodies the problem with pornography is the manner in which it shows the naked body it twists and distorts the truth of the human person beyond recognition and the human person gets reduced to a thing to use rather than to be seen and loved in the image and likeness of God, right? So the, the reaction to pornography should not be to conclude the naked body is evil. The reaction to pornography should be first we recognize that a heavenly mystery is being hellishly mocked by pornography, right? And then we submit all the distortions that have gotten into our minds and into our hearts through these diseased images and ideas that our culture is promoting. 
and we submit all those diseased ideas and images to the transforming power of what St. John Paul II, drawing right out of St. Paul's Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8, we submit it to the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies must be redeemed. Our vision of our bodies must be redeemed. And here's the glory. Here's the mystery, Thomas. When we untwist the hellish mockery of pornography, guess what we see? Through purity of heart, we come to see the image of God revealed through the human body. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. But the impure, the reverse is also true. The impure are blind, right? And this is what pornography has trained us to do. It's trained us to look at the human body, but not to see the dignity of the human person made in the image and likeness of God. If we really saw the dignity of the person, pornography would make us want to weep because these are our brothers and sisters made in the image and likeness of God who are being reduced to objects for selfish pleasure. This should make us want to weep. Jesus, open our eyes. We, all of us, we're the blind man in the gospel. And we have to cry out from the depth of our heart, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. And this is the invitation of the gospel. Right in the first chapter of, of John, the second thing Jesus says in the gospel of John is, come and become one who sees. Come and become one who sees. This is the gift of the theology of the body. It's like putting on a pair of glasses that enables us to see the world as it really is. And we come to see all of creation, especially the human body, as a theophany, as a revelation of the goodness and beauty and splendor of God. Because that's what creation is. It's a reflection of the beauty of the creator. But we need new eyes to see that. And that's what Christ came to do. He came to give sight to the blind. I love your message. So beautiful. And it, it's not my message. Yeah, the, it is the, not my message. I am a messenger. This is this is this is the gospel, right? The first word out of the gospel that Jesus speaks in the gospel of John is what do you want? And this is why I always begin my teaching with that question. I always begin by appealing to human beings deepest longings and desires. And the name that the church gives those deepest longings, wants and desires is eros but unless we follow jesus's second word in the gospel of john come and become one who sees we will confuse eros with porneia right and we will we will use one another rather than love one another and all human relationships when we use others human relationships collapse that's the world we live in today a world that is promoting this idea that happiness comes from using one another rather than happiness comes from loving one another. How could this message of you, excuse me, using versus loving help a, a Christian single who's looking to have a pure courtship? Uh, they, well, you put it this way, you can't have a pure courtship if you are using other people, right? And we are trained, you know, 
you know, like all these apps you get on your phone and you're like, oh, I don't like her nose. Swipe. Oh, I don't like her eyebrows. Swipe. That is the epitome of looking at a person but not seeing the dignity of the person, right? Inherent in that I don't like your nose swipe is a usorial attitude. I will, I will like you if you are pleasing to me. As soon as you don't bring me pleasure, I just swipe you away. And I make this evaluation all in the matter of, of a few seconds, right? Dating in this culture has become, will you bring me pleasure? We've lost the art of getting to know and see and honor and love the person. And we evaluate our relationships based on a set of qualities that either light a spark in me or don't light a spark in me. So let me say something about that. And this is all drawing from John Paul II. He says those qualities in a person that light a spark in us. He says being attracted to that is fine and good. But he says those are the raw materials of love. Those initial sparks, those initial attractions. That's the raw material of love. And he says there is a danger, a serious danger of treating the raw material of love as the finished form of love. And he says if that raw material is not shaped into genuine love, then there's the danger that what we will have is the exact opposite of love, just using one another. And, and in a culture that this is also one of my favorite lines from the gospel, when Jesus says they look but they do not see. You know, and I'll often ask women because they, they intuit these truths, I think, a little more readily than men. Men also understand this stuff, obviously, but maybe it takes us a couple more steps. So I'll ask the women, I'll say, ladies, what's the difference between when a guy looks at you and when a guy sees you? Right? The look is usorial. The look is evaluating, do you please me? Are, are you pleasant to look at? Am I getting something out of you? But to see the person is to recognize the, that the person is indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. These are three very important words in the language of John Paul II. Indispensable. Persons are indispensable. Things you can throw away. Right. If your toaster breaks, you throw it away and you get another one because toasters are dispensable and replaceable. Toasters are also repeatable. You can go to the store and find a hundred toasters that are exactly the same. But the human person is indispensable, irreplaceable and unrepeatable. Only those who have eyes to see can reach that level of the dignity of the person. And when we do, when we do reach that level, the idea of just picking up my phone and swiping someone away because I don't like her nose or I don't like his eyebrows or whatever, that becomes unthinkable because our goal is no longer what pleases me. The goal becomes, I wonder what this person is like. I want to know and honor and love this person. Persons cannot be reduced to a bunch of qualities. Qualities are repeatable. You can always find the same qualities in lots of different people, 
right? And even to a more pleasing degree. But the mystery of the person is unrepeatable. And love is only built on a solid foundation when it reaches the unrepeatable mystery of the person. And and we haven't even spoken here yet about sexual relation, the sexual relationship in the sense of consummate sexual union. The sexual act only honors the dignity of the person if it is an affirmation of the dignity of the person. If it says to the person, you are indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you for another. This is what the human person is worth. And everyone, when we peel away the layers of our defenses and our our kind of knee-jerk reactions against church teaching that we're probably really reacting against a legalism when we do that and not so much the true teaching of the church. But when we get down to the deepest level of the person, every human being, I don't care if you are the most uh, uh, outspoken atheist, you want to be seen in your deepest value as an unrepeatable, indispensable, irreplaceable person. And you want to be honored there. You want to be known there. You want to be respected there. This is why the church teaches what she teaches about human sexuality, because chastity is not a repressive no to sexual desire and sexual activity. Chastity is the virtue that orients eros, erotic desire, towards the truth of honoring and upholding the true dignity and worth of the person, which is what all of us yearn for and desire. When I started learning this stuff from John Paul II, this is why it rocked my world, because it spoke directly to my own deepest yearnings and desires, and it helped me take my masks off and stop pretending that it's okay just to have casual sexual encounters because it feels good. No, no, these casual sexual encounters that I had had as a young person, they wounded me profoundly. And John Paul II's theology of the body was like pouring oil on those wounds. That's beautiful. I actually need to thank you and Dave Sloan for this kind of message for for why my wife went on a second date with me. Because I've awesome. It's it's because of this kind of message that I learned. You know, I'm here to serve. I'm here to get to know you. You know, I, on the first date, you know, she said to me, "Friends first, right?" And I'm like. Yeah, that's that's where I was totally. Yeah, beautiful. So, so thank Thomas, you so much. Yeah, there's there's a beautiful practical example of how this teaching changes a life. Uh, ideas have consequences. Mm-hmm. The way we think about ourselves as persons, as men and women, the way we think about our bodies, the way we either honor or fail to honor our own bodies first and foremost, is going to reflect directly on how we enter into and develop our friendships, our relationships, our romantic relationships. And and ultimately, ultimately, we are dealing, when we're talking about chastity or the lack thereof, we have to understand that word properly again. We're not talking about some repressive, negative approach to sexuality. We're talking about a, a highly affirmative approach to the value and dignity of sexuality.
these really and truly are life and death questions. It, it, this is John Paul II who said it. This is a quote from him. He says, it is an illusion to think we can build a true culture of human life unless we accept and experience sexuality, love, and the whole of human life according to their true meaning and their close interconnection. If we don't understand sexuality, love, and the whole of life according to their true meaning and their close interconnection, it is an illusion that we can find life and happiness. It's an illusion that we can have a culture that flourishes because the foundation of culture is the union of man and woman. It all starts there. If we get that right, we'll have a culture that flourishes. If we get that wrong, we'll have a culture that collapses. This, this, is, this is just bedrock basic facts of life. But here's the problem. You know, what we used to call the facts of life, today these facts are entirely up for grabs. We are questioning in the modern world the fundamental meaning of masculinity and femininity. In fact, we're trying to erase the fundamental meaning of masculinity and femininity. And we're trying to make men and women, men and women simply interchangeable. And on the one hand, I think that's understandable as a knee-jerk reaction against previous ideas out there that I think exaggerated the sexual difference, oftentimes in favor of men and, and to the disadvantage of women. I think we can make a strong argument that that's been, that has happened in previous cultures. But now we've gone to the other extreme and we think the solution to the exaggeration is to exaggerate in the other direction where we try to eliminate the difference altogether. Whoa, 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 time out. If it weren't for the sexual difference, none of us would exist. A culture that tries to erase the sexual difference is a culture that's committing a slow and a painful suicide. Speaking about our existence from a mother and from a father joining, uh, why would, according to Pope St. John Paul II, why would anyone ever become a priest or a religious or be celibate? Oh yeah, it's a great, great question. It's one of my favorite topics to address when I'm uh, teaching Theology of the Body. In fact, John Paul II develops a, a, a beautiful, rich theology of celibacy. So to answer the question, we have to look at the biblical vision of what sexuality is. And here's, here's just the nutshell version of it, right? The Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman, but it ends in the book of Revelation with the marriage of God and us, Christ and the church. And the whole purpose of the marriage of man and woman that starts the Bible is to give us a little glimmer, a sacramental foreshadowing of our eternal destiny, which is union with God forever, right? The destiny of the human person is not sexual union. That's just the little glimmer that gives us a window into the eternal destiny that the marriage that scripture calls the marriage of the lamb. In light of that, we can understand why Jesus says in the resurrection, we're no longer given in marriage. Why? Because you no longer need a sign to point you to Disney World when you're in Disney World, right? 
Imagine your family's driving along the highway trying to get to Disney World. That's your destination. And you pulled over to the side of the side of the road when you saw a sign for Disney World and you said, hey, kids, we're there. And they're like, Dad, we're not there. This is just a sign of Disney World. Well, marriage, the union of man and woman, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, it's just a sign of heaven. It's not our ultimate destiny. And you don't need a sign to point you to heaven when you're in heaven. This is why we're no longer given in marriage in the resurrection. Now, only in light of that, can we understand why Jesus invites some to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It is celibacy for God's sake, not celibacy for God's sake. It's celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the celibate man who is celibate for the kingdom, he marries the church. The celibate woman marries Christ. And in this way, the celibate man and the celibate woman become a witness here and now to our ultimate destiny, union with God forever. It's beautiful. I'd like to take this moment to apologize to everyone for the technical difficulties that ended this interview. This interview was recorded on Valentine's Day 2019, which I think is very appropriate, given that the Theology of the Body was presented by the Pope of Love. Now I'd like to tell you about Christopher West's work. This is great work. He's a, as you heard, he uses these wonderful metaphors to break down very complex theological ideas. And if you want to find out more, you can go to theologyofthebody.com slash free course. I think it's a forward slash free course. He also has books such as Theology of the Body for Beginners. And you can find that at their shop at the core project. That's C-O-R project.com. And you can find his books there. Also, he has another book called Good News About Sex and Marriage. Another one, Love is, Love is Patient, But I'm Not. And lastly, Word Made Flesh, a companion to the Sunday Mass readings. I'm so grateful that Christopher was able to join us, and I was able to express that to him. I just didn't get to do it on the air, but now I have. I would also like to thank all of you for listening. If you're looking for Catholic life coaching or therapy services that are informed and inspired by Theology of the Body, check out my website at healingandpeace.com. I offer Catholic life, relationship, and family coaching worldwide and Catholic therapy services for individuals, couples, and families in about six U.S. states and in certain countries that honor my California license. To stay informed about future shows, subscribe to my e-newsletter, that can be found at healingandpeace.com slash blog. And you can also easily find my social media handles at healingandpeace.com and healingandpeace.com slash blog. I'm licensed marriage and family therapist, Thomas Schmier, and you've been listening to the Healing and Peace Show. Until next time, may God bless you with healing and peace.